Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO Podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Adam Robertson. Adam is the Chief Scientific Officer at Hemispherian in Oslo. Adam, can you tell us about what you're doing at Hemispherian? So right now, Hemispherian is advancing pharmaceuticals for the treatment of a rare but extremely aggressive brain tumor, glioblastoma multiform. Uh, this work is based on about 10 years of research in my academic laboratory, and we're making great progress. We're about, I would say, about a year away from actually getting into the first patient. That's great. What was the impetus for Hemispherian? So Hemispherian actually has an interesting story. Yeah, I was not actually a founder of Hemispherian. My colleague Zeno and one of his friends, his name is Pierre, was the, one of the initial founders of Hemispherian. They're software engineers, and they ran a software company. It initially started as a consulting company. My friend, also named Pierre, he joined up and wanted to do bioinformatics. Um, and they just wanted to streamline some of the bioinformatics pipeline there that you know, we found, or that he found was particularly challenging in understanding how bioinformatics was, the way the data was transferred, not so much about the way it was analyzed. And I ended up just hearing about Hemispherian from my friend at the University of Pierre. And so I ended up just going to a meeting and thought this would be really fun to try something as a private company. Then eventually it turned out that you know our bioinformatic thing didn't really work out very well. It was it worked, it just didn't make any money. I think that's often the case with uh, bioinformatics tools. And I had no idea Hemispherian started as a bioinformatics <laughs> company. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was a, it was and the Xenos, you know, he's an excellent software engineer and Pierre also excellent software engineer. They, they made the platform genome stream, but it just didn't make enough money to justify its existence. Uh, so yeah, then when I joined up, right, we were doing this cancer drug. One of my PhD students was also involved with that. And kind of at the same time as that was the genome stream wasn't making a lot of money, we end up getting the rights to the uh, these cancer drugs from the technology transfer office. Pivot. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a pivot, I guess. We were just looking for, at the time, we were looking for a way to make money. And then this kind of came out of nowhere, really. We were not expecting, uh, we weren't expecting to be able to get the, the rights to it. It turned out that because of the way the law is written here, we got free from the university. So that, that worked out really well. That's how kind of my history with Hemispherian. So I wasn't there at the beginning, but I joined up about three, I think three years ago. And you know, that's and that's how we ended up doing cancer instead of uh, bioinformatics. Very interesting. What, what have been the major things that you've learned in moving from academia to the biotech startup world? Well, so I think the main thing that you kind of, that I learned really quickly is that things happen uh, a lot more quickly, but you don't end up having the uh, same flexibility. So you you don't have this tendency to get sidetracked on interesting things. You get the one thing or two things that you're trying to get done, and you do them until they are done. And if something interesting happens to come up, well, you can maybe make a note about that. And maybe you come back, but most of the time you're just trying to get to the goal, which from my experience, is very different than academia. And I, I can't say that, you know, for, for their purposes, one is better than the other. In academia, you get sidetracked and it's fun and you find out a new new thing and you want to publish that. And industry, you get sidetracked and then you just don't, you don't get to make any money. And if something doesn't get done and somebody's unhappy and you don't, that's never a good spot. You don't sound Norwegian. You did your education in the U.S. Can you tell us about your own path? Yeah, so I did my PhD and actually all my schooling in the U.S. I went to undergraduate at Virginia Tech and PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. After I finished my PhD, I came to Norway to do a postdoc with Arne Kunglund. He was, um, I met him at a conference, I want to say in Denver, 
and he um, offered me a postdoc out there. And so that was, I did end up visiting Oslo one time and I really loved it. It was covered in snow in the winter. It was beautiful. So eventually went out there and that's how I got started out in Oslo. I ended up staying for a variety of reasons. I think mainly I ended up getting married and had kids, which once you do that, it's harder to be mobile. I think the first maybe three months were the toughest, but then after that, I had reasonably good connections out here and things started to pick up. What were the biggest cultural differences you, you encountered? So with the culture out here, it's nice. I mean, everybody obviously speaks Norwegian, but then it's also nice out here because everybody speaks perfect English, but you can't jump into a conversation because everybody's speaking Norwegian. If you're at a bar or something, everybody's speaking Norwegian, you can't just kind of say, oh, that was a great whatever just happened. You can't understand any of that, or at least the beginning couldn't understand any of that. That was hard to just kind of fit in. Now, of course, once you did make it known that you were speaking English, they immediately switched to English and they all don't really mind it. Sometimes they really like to speak English a little bit. Maybe this isn't really a cultural difference, but geographical difference is that it's very dark in the winter here, uh, which I found... Personally, I found that miserable, but you know, I guess you get used to it over a few years. But the first one here, that was really intense. Uh, it's just, it's surprising how strange that feels when you just don't see the sun for most of the day. Did you get one of those uh, sun lamps? No, I didn't. Ha- I never had one of those, uh, but they do have them here. I never ended up. Uh, maybe I should have done that. Yeah. Cool. And so after your postdoc, you were you were a group leader at Oslo University Hospital, right? Yep. Can you tell us about, about your experience there? So I ended up having a really diverse lab. I had PhDs, postdocs from pretty much everywhere. And that was really great. So many different cultures, languages, and experiences. I, I really had a good time with all of them. We published a lot of papers and found some really interesting stuff. Um, so I have to think that every single one of the people there contributed, definitely had a great time. And I, at the end there, this was really the most interesting part. Teresa, she's an excellent PhD student, and she's also now part of the hemisphere team. She ended up kind of discovering these molecules, the molecules that were advancing in hemisphere. And I still remember the day she proposed the experiment to me. And I still remember saying, I don't think that's going to work. And I even recommended not to do it because I thought so strongly that it wasn't going to work. And so, yeah, but she did it anyway. And it turns out, yeah, she was right and I was wrong. <laughs> so It's funny how that happens, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really amazing because if it was just me, I would have said, yep, that's never going to work. I would never try that. And I had really good reasons for it. And, but she did it anyway because she thought it was going to work and it did work. Well, it's like the, uh, the discovery of buckyballs at Rice was, was famously because Rick Smalley's lab was moving from, from one location to another. And the postdoc took his machine apart perfectly and put it back together perfectly. And the grad student forgot a filter. And that allowed the creation of this new molecule and kicked off what eventually led to the Nobel Prize and the launching of this field of carbon nanotechnology. I, I actually was not familiar with that story. That's that's really quite amazing. I have to go look that one up. Uh, I, I think that that's pretty common. Is that serendipity is huge? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just jumps out, and or a different way of looking at it. So I see you're you're doing work on non-canonical bases, DNA modifications, rather. Yes, yeah. Well, that's what we. That's what my academic career was. Um, we still do stuff like that at Hemisphere, but that's much less exploratory. It's much more focused on 
know, how these drugs end up working. Mm -hmm. Cool. And you can, can you tell us about what you did in your academic work? So in, in my academic career, we ended up, so there, there's a DNA-based modification that's it's an oxidized form of methylcytosine, largely attributed to affecting transcriptional regulation. There was no reason to believe that transcription was having these effects, although it could. So we ended up kind of taking a different direction with a lot of that stuff. So we were looking at reasons that this base or this base was doing something that was unrelated to transcription. And we ended up finding a few things. So we found, and Teresa found, I think the most interesting one, which is that the base is involved in replication licensing. It's a barrier to replication licensing so that the cell replicates its DNA one time and only one time. So it's um, one of three other factors that she was able to identify. And that's also uh, kind of the basis for how she found these drugs is that if you were to rather than inhibit the pathway, enhance that pathway, then that should be, and it actually is, uh, very cytotoxic to cancer cells, but not normal cells. So what do you think were your key influences that brought you to, to where you are now? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of things that ended up contributing to that. And I think the most impactful, really thinking about this a lot, my grandfather on my father's side, when I was, I don't know, 10 or 12, he bought me a microscope. I think it was for Christmas. Maybe it was for my birthday. I actually can't remember. Um, and I, I don't really have, I didn't see him very much. I maybe saw him five times in my life. But that's one of the times when he did, you know, he got something for me. And I was fascinated by that to be able to see you know, kind of what was what was going on, you know, very small things. And I spent a lot of time looking at almost everything you could find for years. Um, and then I don't know if that's the reason I decided to, to do biology, but it certainly played into it. So I ended up going to Virginia Tech to study biology, uh, partially because of that influence. And when I went to Virginia Tech, I met my advisor there, George Simmons, who pretty, he was very good at you know, encouraging you and just like, you know, keep going. I ended up doing research pretty much because of his suggestions. I did research in a few laboratories there. So that was, George Simmons was definitely a huge influence there. Uh, and then later, a colleague at the National Institutes of Health, very encouraging, took me in as a summer intern. He was a neurosurgeon. So I ended up doing some research on in neurosurgery, which was really cool. It's fascinating. It's like another world in there. So kept me going and also in the research field. It took two years off to do some work at the National Institutes of Health uh, with the same gentleman, John Heiss, and then joined up at Steve Madsen's lab. He was the chairman at the time, and he ended up being the dean. But it was nice to be in his lab because he was always his lab was always very small. So he had a lot of attention and you had pretty much freedom to do what you wanted, but he was also very clear that, you know, this, you have to do it properly. Everything was done properly. Um, so that was really helpful. Coming out here in Oslo, I had a good mentorship with Arna Kungla. He actually helped me start my laboratory here eventually. And of course, my colleagues, Teresa and now Zeno, and obviously my, my wife was very, very supportive. Yeah, a lot of a lot of influences, but I'm, I guess I've been doing this for a long, long time. <laughs> what what advice would you have for people going into the biotech startup world for the first time? What are, what are, maybe what, what are some common mistakes you see? It's difficult for me to say there because um, I actually you know sometimes I think somebody's making a mistake, but it turns out they were right. So actually, if I were to give advice in biotech. I would probably be wrong. <laughs> so I think you kind of have to do what you think is right. And you have to obviously take as much advice as you can. 
But if you think it's right, just go ahead and do that thing because there's tons of people, including me, who might say that doesn't make any sense, but then it works out and it works out way better than you could possibly have imagined. Yeah, I think that's a level of insight most people don't have. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think we don't do well in biomedical research? Where where do you see things consistently breaking down or avoidable mistakes being made? Uh, In in the research field, I find a lot of agreement in this. And actually, it's really hard to say stuff like this when you're outside of the research field. But now that I'm in more industrial things, it's a little easier to talk about stuff like this. Uh, the pressure to publish, I think, is pretty devastating to most research, just because you know it prevents you from doing stuff properly. People take shortcuts just to get publications out there, and so you know it's all good intention because you expect that these results will be this case, but you still cut the corner, and then maybe you find something really interesting. It's also you don't really have the opportunity to follow up the way you'd like to follow up, um, so because you, you end up. You just get the paper, just get the paper, just get the paper, because your grant is dependent on that. And your PhD or your postdoc, any success is dependent on that. So if you don't get the paper, then you've got a big problem. So it's just, I think that um, the whole pressure to publish really prevents, uh, not always prevents good science, but it, it definitely, it could be a lot easier, I think, or to do good science without that pressure. And of course, then it brings up the, the most logical thing is what would you put in its place? And I don't have a great answer there. I have actually have struggled with that a little bit. And then, you know, you can look at it and say, yeah, that's a problem. But what do you, how do you fix that problem? So it's a, you still need to communicate and professionally communicate. And publications so far are, are the best for that. So kind of the problem is also this, you know, it's a solution to a different problem. Yeah, it seems to me sometimes that there's too much pressure put on the name of the the journal, right? When the variance in in citations is within a journal is is vast. I don't know. To me, it seems a little anachronistic, right? Like everything's online anyway. We already gather all these metrics of citations on the actual papers themselves, and and now we have you know solid preprint servers. I mean, not to say there's no value add from journals and so on. But it seems, you know, if a paper is getting a lot of attention and you can basically get post-publication peer review for a manuscript posted on a, a preprint server or something, that might be a little better than the, the three reviewers who are randomly drawn by the journal. Yeah, I think that I actually would like to see that. But then what I imagine pops up is rather than evaluating the paper for scientific merits and say, ah, oh, I learned something from this or this is valuable to my research. What I imagine would happen is a ranking or metrics for that paper for something like reads or shares or something like that. And that, that then becomes the share number of times it's shared or the number of times somebody comments on it is then the metric. And so then you would write your paper so that whatever that metric ends up being. It gets gamed. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. That's, that's, that's what I think happens with the publications is that people game it for, say, to publish in higher impact factor journals rather than for the purpose of communicating science. And what do you think is the elephant in the room in biotech? That's a, that's a little bit more difficult for me to answer because I'm in biotech. Of course, money is the, the driving factor for biotech. So, of course, that's maybe not a bad driver in our field, for instance, we're looking at cancer drugs, and it's pretty clear that it's very hard to get a drug to market. It's expensive, and that if you don't have the right indication, it's a very small indication, then you just don't get enough money to get the drug forward. There are ways to get around that stuff, but it's to really have a good financial backing 
to be able to get this to market. And if your market is very small, those indications just aren't, or it's very difficult to find a way to get a drug to, or something to treat them. So I'm familiar with the funding landscape in the US and in the UK. I know nothing about how that typically works for Norwegian biotechs. Are your investors largely Anglo-American or are they Scandinavian or how does, how does that work? So we have, right now we have investment uh, mostly from Norwegian family office. We also have investment from the UK and some, some in the US. The financing, I don't think it's easier or harder here. I just think it's hard trying to find money. And I think we've been pretty lucky. And uh, right now we have, uh, our investors are excellent. They're tuned in, or at least the, the investors that want to be, they're tuned in and they want to help and they pretty much do everything they can to help. They try to understand what we're doing. We talk to them a lot. I guess, you know, they're, they're also looking after their investment, but you know, they really do want to help the company you know, get the, our drugs to market. And that will end up helping you know, these patients with glioblastoma. Um, so for me, the investment here, uh, it was definitely hard to get. But once we did, we're, I'm very, very happy with uh, the investors that we got. How has COVID affected you at Hemispherian? It has had too much of a negative effect on us, actually. Because we have laboratory work, most people end up being on home office. We have laboratory work, which you really can't do at home. So we end up still having to go to work almost every day. As far as investment goes, it was harder initially. Because people, as soon as that happened, people just said, uh, we're going to reevaluate. We'll come back to you. And then they just never did. Or that, you know, just they kicked it or kicked it down the road for a year and said, we'll come back to us next year um, when this thing is over. So I think ongoing investment efforts at the time were challenging, but doing the, the work that we're trying to do, it really hasn't had any significant effect. The, the investment was really the issue for us. And have you seen that that bounce back? Because I, I've heard that from a lot of people that in the early days, you know, there was a lot of fear of contagion and of large economic consequences. And, and that since then, you know, a lot of VCs have adapted and are making investments in companies where they never have a, an in-person face-to-face meeting with the principals. It is starting to come back to my recollection of what it was in, say, January, February of last year. But I, I think that it's on its way back. We're not actively looking for money right now. So, I mean, we're just I'm just updating the people who we talk to normal or in the past. So at the moment, not looking for money, it's hard to say exactly how challenging it is. But it does seem that people are or investors are out there and ready to go again. So that's I think, you know, things are starting to come back. What's the biotech ecosystem like in Oslo? Um, so it's small, but not, Oslo is, I mean, it's, a, it's the biggest city in Norway by population, but it's pretty, still a pretty small city by most European standards. So the biotech, we would expect, is also pretty small. Uh, I work at an incubator here. It's called ShareLab, and it's quite remarkable. It's a pretty state-of-the-art facility out here. Uh, where pretty much anything you want to do, they can you can do it here. Or if you can't do it, you just talk to the, um, the gentleman running it, and they will get it for you. It, it just make it happen. Um, there's also another incubator down the road at the uh, Oslo Cancer Cluster. That's also a nice location. So it, it's uh, just we ended up being here. Then the, the ecosystem. We started. We were the first company here, maybe the second company here, and now there's I think 20 companies in the share lab. So it's definitely growing. If it continues this way, it would be you know, very similar to some of the bigger places, although at a smaller scale still. But I think that it's definitely on the up and up, and it's a very interesting time to be here, for sure. 
And for, for companies in the region, in terms of their collaborations and partnerships and so on, does there tend to be any uh, kind of geographic preference there? You know, are they, are they often working with companies in France and Germany and Switzerland, or is it more the UK or the US or just? Most of our collaborations are in the US now. Uh, we do have some local collaborations at the university here in Oslo and in Trondheim, uh, which is you know, just a little bit uh, north and to the west of us. But most of the stuff we do is either with very local, close by, or in the U.S. Some of the other companies, I think in Switzerland is kind of the go-to place in Germany. I know there's a lot of collaborations there, but pretty much everywhere in, in the European Union is can think of places where absolutely there's somebody collaborating with somebody in there, but I can't say that any are overrepresented. And of course, it's a lot easier to mention our collaborators because I know exactly who they are and where they are. So, right. So, <laughs> And if you were to go back to 18-year-old Adam, what would you tell him? Uh, maybe be a banker. <laughs> no, uh, it definitely is rewarding sometimes, but I can see that it's a lot more work than some other professions. If this is what you really enjoy, then yeah, that's I would recommend doing it. Right. I guess that's always the the difficult thing about science, right? You can you can work for literally years on something and you finally get the definitive results back and it just, <laughs> you know, nature doesn't agree with you and because it's not engineering. You can't, you can't, you know, <laughs> force it to be the way you want. You just have to have to move on. Right. Yeah. And I, I think there, but there are, I guess there are some new engineer and genetic engineering and some of these uh, synthetic biology things where you actually can get in there and do that. <laughs> have a synthetic biology pivot, <laughs> make, <laughs> make it work the way you need it yeah, to work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> If only everything was that simple. <laughs> Just get in there and do whatever you wanted to do. So what what would be success for Hemispherian? We kind of have different metrics in that case. So when we started, what we wanted to do was to be able to advance the drugs that we have to the completion of the phase two. And then we imagined at that point that this would be of interest to the pharmaceutical companies and they would just buy the company and that would be our exit. Since then, we've been doing, you know, learning a lot about this space and pharmaceutical development. It turns out that it's very possible that we could take it much further along if we wanted to. It's difficult to say once you have options like that where you could sell the company or not, but it turns out that, you know, it's possible that because of the indication it's relatively small, you know, after you do this for a while, you can get to know many of the people in the field and maybe most of the doctors doing the trials, you could take it further potentially into the phase three and potentially even being able to market your own drugs. So that, you know, that would also be success. Personally, I think that would be the most fun way to do it. I don't know if that's the way we will do it, but it's interesting that it has sort of come up as an option. Well, at the very least, it's good to have as a best alternative to negotiated agreement, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it would be very hard, I think, if we get it past the phase two. And then you know, we have success and then we get a bunch of offers and say, no, we're going to keep that going. We do want to help these patients out. But at the same time, we're, we also have to keep in mind that you know, we do have investors and we also personally have invested a lot. So we would like to get some return on that. And, and also the pharmaceutical companies, they're pretty able to take a phase three trial. They've done it hundreds, perhaps thousands of times. They know what they're doing. For us, it would just be for fun and because it's something we like to do. Perhaps maybe even in the interest of everyone, we just would sell it anyway. So it, it kind of it really depends, and we're I think we're at least four or five years from that, so we have some time to think for sure. 
If I can ask the classic Peter Thiel question, what's, <laughs> what's one thing that you believe is true that most people would not agree with? Yeah, I don't have a great answer for that one. I'm trying to think, what do I believe is true? Because um, I, I think that most people kind of have the beliefs and then they also have believe what is true and then there's kind of the reality of the situation. For instance, do something because you like it. But then there's the other competing force, which is you got to also eat, right? you got to make money. So most people, like me, kind of have to keep that in mind that, you know, if you do what you really want to do for a living, you may not end up being able to pay the bills. So you kind of have to do what you want to do and still figure out a way to pay the bills. So maybe it's a little less fun in one area, but you still get paid to do it. I don't know if that's really the answer to your question, but it's kind of what I would say is do what you want to do, but then you got to figure out a way to you know, make it reasonable and realistic. No, that's pretty good. I mean, balance is important, right? It's interesting. You know, I, I reflect back to high school. You know, I went to a, a school that had a, a pretty good music and arts program. We had some phenomenally talented uh, musicians. And I, I looked a lot of them up a couple of years ago. And they're, they're all very smart people, too. And, and, and pretty much all of them, you know, went to conservatory. You know, they were playing in professional orchestras and teaching music students and things. And then they ended up migrating their day job to software development. <laughs> and, and now they play, you know, they still play in community orchestras and things like this, but it's, it's uh, more their hobby than their paid work. Yeah, I think that's kind of some degree unfortunate that you know, they can't do what they want. I mean, if that's what they wanted to do for their, for their living and then there simply just isn't enough payment in there, that's, I think that's unfortunate. I mean, I, th I think it's a bit of a winner's take all kind of world, you know, unless you're Yo-Yo Ma or something. Uh, you know, if you're the <laughs> if you're the 30th best cellist in the world, you're still an amazing cellist. But you know, you're still going to be having to uh, probably teach kids cello lessons and things <laughs> to, to make ends meet. Yeah, I guess I know. I guess that's you're you're right. It's kind of a winner take all in that case. And I still think that's pretty elite if you're in the top 30 and then you still can't you know, can't make a living. Yeah. So post-Hemispherian, when, when Hemispherian has succeeded beyond everyone's wildest dreams, what do you think you'll do next? So admittedly, I haven't not given that tons of thought, but I, I think that once Hemispherian does have an exit, I, I think I would like to do another company. I really have done a lot, had a lot of fun. And I think it will be a very different experience this time because I know kind of what to expect and I kind of know who to talk to when I need something or when something needs to happen. So I don't need to do all that extra work of trying to figure out what the question is. Now I know, you know what to do exactly at this stage. So I think that will make it a lot easier and maybe make it a lot more fun. Is that those were, there's a lot of roadblocks we had, and mostly because we didn't know what we were doing. And now we, we at least gotten past those. It's interesting talking with first-time founders of biotech companies. Pretty much is always the always the answer is you know start another company, but this time I have a better idea of what I'm doing, so we can skip over a lot of the uh, the pain. Yeah, I'd have I, I'd be curious to know um, what the other the other companies because I do know a lot of other folks that they have started companies and they come out the other side and they end up. I, I think frequently I see that they end up being investment analysis or starting their own investment firm. And I think that would be interesting. I don't know if I'd like to do that, but and I didn't ever say that I thought that I would be doing a biotech, but I think that would be interesting to look at other companies and to see people who were my situation. Mm -hmm. We'll have to see, I think, for sure. Time will tell. <laughs> 
Great. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today, Adam. It was great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. It's uh, really interesting. And, uh, you know, of course, really great to keen on keeping up the collaboration. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on.